Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I'm very excited about today's show. I can hardly wait because we're going to have another opportunity to hear from my friend and Bible teacher and mentor, Jeff Verdorn. Uh, We talked about election. It was so much uh, to listen to and to absorb that I thought, you know what, I want to run it again and give everybody another chance to hear it. Um, So let's start with that. Let's take a little break. And then when we come back, We'll have a full hour with Bible teacher Jeff Verdorn on the topic of election. February is our anniversary month here at Faith Radio with a legacy stretching back to 1949. Through the years of ministry, friends who valued the daily Bible teaching and compelling conversations have given generously and sacrificially. And God has been at work through this growing radio outreach, bringing about life change and transformation. If you've been blessed by Faith Radio and have benefited by the programming made possible by the gift of others, will you make this month your time to join in support? Make a gift today at MyFaithRadio.com. It's a new year and a new decade. Perhaps you're a relatively new listener to Faith Radio. If so, welcome. We'd like to send you a free welcome packet. Just go to MyFaithRadio.com and click on the link that says Get Your Welcome Packet. Submit your contact information and we'll send you some materials about our mission and ministry. You can also encourage a friend to request a welcome packet too. Thanks for listening and blessings to you throughout this new year and beyond. You're listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad to have Jeff Verdorn, my friend, my Bible teacher, my mentor. He's on a six-week mission trip to Arizona. I don't know if he's just playing golf or I don't know what he's doing, but I'm a little jealous. But I'm awfully glad to have him on our studio line today. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hi, Bill. One of the things that I find very uh, endearing is that while you were uh, on vacation, so to speak, or getting six weeks away in Arizona, you're still listening to my show, which is nice. I was, actually. I have listened to your show a number of times when I'm not in town. Now, I think a few weeks ago, there was a show you were listening to that got your attention, and the subject matter was uh, election. It was. So I was listening, and the subject of election came up, and understanding salvation, uh, theologians call this soteriology, the study of salvation, is one of my favorite topics. You know I have a lot of favorite topics, you know, the end times and salvation, but salvation is right up there, because when we properly understand God's salvation, uh, it's a very uh, important understanding to have. How did we enter into this salvation, this union with Christ, that we are united with Christ? Um, and I am a firm believer that it's by faith, through faith. And this topic of election came up, and I just started taking notes and more notes and counter notes and um, just kind of talking about it. I thought, you know what, we need to talk about uh, kind of maybe an alternative view to the Calvinistic uh, Reformed view of election and uh, understand properly what, what I think is properly, what is God's 
true plan or biblical plan of salvation when it comes to faith. Does God choose some people to be saved, or did Christ come to die for all, for the whole world, and does God then offer salvation to everyone, and then whosoever believes will be saved? Now, one of the things that I heard in in the talk that I completely agree with is that this is kind of an in-house debate. Um, this is a debate that we can have about Scripture, what some of these passages mean, because these the, there are some difficult passages about this that point to one way or the other. And I think the body of when you understand all of Scripture, it's very clear that, that Christ came for all, he died for all, and he offers salvation to all, and whosoever believes will be saved. But that in-house debate is kind of amongst us, um, us Christians. So um, I encourage people as as they're listening, if, if you have one particular view or another, let's just see what does the scripture say? Let's look at a whole bunch of scriptures today and let's look at it kind of point by point by point um, as far as what is God's plan of salvation. We started in Ephesians 1 and it's a book that I'm working on and there seems to be so many illustrations of God. Uh, and his foreknowledge and his uh, predestined us to adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. And it seems like it's a very strong, clear uh, argument for it. Yeah, so Ephesians 1, there's lots of things in Ephesians 1. There's this whole description about what we are in Christ. So it says that we are for example, holy. It says that we're blameless. It says that we have redemption, that uh, we have forgiveness, that we've been chosen, that we've been included in Christ. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, and we receive the Holy Spirit. And all of those promises um, are yours. And I think one of the key passages, and I know it says in the beginning that we're chosen and predestined and so on. We'll get to those. But I think all of Ephesians 1 hinges on verse 13, where it says, having believed, you are marked in him with the deposit of the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's, it says, and you, and starting in verse, we'll start at the beginning of verse 13, and you are also included in Christ. In other words, you were saved when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. All right? So what's the sequence of events there? What's the pattern that we see? And the pattern is that a person hears the message, which is the gospel, and when you believe it, then you are saved. Calvinism teaches that you are saved in order to believe. In other words, you're regenerated by God, by his choosing, by his election, so that they can believe in him. I believe scripture says that we believe so that we are saved, right? You know, remember Romans 10 says, how can someone believe unless they hear, and how can someone hear unless someone goes and preaches? Mm -hmm. So my sequence of events that I understand scripture is we preach the gospel, People hear the gospel, and then someone either decides that they're going to believe the gospel or they're not going to believe the gospel. And for those that believe it are saved by God. One of the other points related to this is uh, it came up, the topic came up, that, well, aren't we dead in our trespasses and sins? And 
in in the conversation, it was this deadness that we are what equates in in kind of in the Calvinistic theology uh, to an inability to believe, an inability to understand and to believe the gospel. So God has to zap you first. God has to come in and elect you first in order that you can believe it. But but this is not actually what Scripture says. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, indeed. But that deadness does not equate to an inability to believe the gospel, all right? Our deadness has to do with our eternal salvation, our eternal destiny, that those who are saved are destined to heaven, those who are not saved are destined to the lake of fire. And so in our deadness, we don't have life, we don't have that eternal life that those who believe in Jesus Christ have, so they're dead in their trespasses and sins. It does not equate to an inability to believe. In fact, this is, when you think about it, lost people believe many, many things. Many lost people believe in other gods. Many lost people believe in no gods. Many lost people believe in millions of gods. Um, Lost people believe many things. And uh, so the, the fact that people that are not saved can believe things uh, just seems to me to be kind of a, a, a you know, no-nonsense kind of understanding. Of course they can believe things. And in fact, one of the things that you see in Scripture is God's commanding people to believe. Not only do I believe he offers this salvation to everyone, he actually over and over in Scripture again commands people to believe. Matthew says, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Jesus says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent, John 6, 29. He says in John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. That Greek word there is the same word for believe. So trust, believe, the same Greek word. In John 20, it says, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. Do you see that? You see that sequence there? Mm -hmm. The believing comes first, and then the saving comes next. All right? Acts 16, the the jailer, if you remember this scene, this is one of the, the clearest and simplest explanations of salvation and the the sequence of events here that we believe to be saved as opposed to being saved so that we can believe. And do you remember the scene in Acts 16? Uh, uh, Paul is in jail, and there's an earthquake. They're singing hymns. You know, that's the first thing that I think about if I was ever wrongly imprisoned for my faith is, you know, start singing to God and being joyful. I I think I'd probably be sitting there stewing and complaining and figuring (laughs) out how to get it. Anyway, there's an earthquake and the doors come open and the the guard rushes in and thinking that they're all gone, he's about to kill himself. And and Paul says, "No, no, 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 don't kill yourself. We're still all here. And he can't believe it, right? He can't believe that these men are still here. They, would, they didn't flee. And he probably heard them talking and preaching and singing about God because his question is this, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That is the core question that we're talking about here, mm-hmm. right? What must I do to be saved? Now, the Calvinists will say, there's nothing you can do. There's absolutely nothing that anyone can do in order to be saved, because basically you have to wait 
until God elects you, until God regenerates you so that you can believe. But what does Paul answer? Paul answers the simplest and one of the clearest pictures of salvation in Scripture. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Which when you think about it, John 3.16 says the exact same thing. Now, in this discussion that I heard on, last week on, on the radio, on your show, um, there was a discussion about John 3.16. I just didn't understand. I got so frustrated. I'm sitting there typing out all my notes. It's like, oh, we got to talk about this. Because what a perfect and clear picture, once again, of this sequence. For God so loved the world, he loves everybody, right? Every single person on the planet he loves. Every single person on the planet was made in God's image, is an image bearer of God, and he loves the world so much that he sent his one and only son to die for the sins of the world. And we got to get there in a minute, that Christ, when he died, died for all people's sins, not just some, but for all, mm -hmm. who died for the sins of the world, so that whosoever, meaning anyone, meaning everyone, meaning anyone who believes, whosoever believes in me, shall not perish, but have eternal life. They'll be saved. All right, Jeff, we're going to have to take a little break. Jeff Redorn's my guest. We're talking about the election in Scripture, and we're digging into the Word, so uh, keep your Bibles out and your notebooks handy. We'll take a short break and be right back. listening to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. All right, we are back. Jeff Redorn's my guest. He's uh, coming to us today via Skype, and we're also glad that he's making time. Uh, we were chatting uh, a couple of weeks ago about the subject of election, which came up on the show, and we're having a, a deep discussion on this today. And Jeff, uh, we were just chatting about John 3.16 and what a perfect illustration it is of salvation. We were in an... Yes, and in Acts 16, and it's it's basically the sequence of events, uh, the the pattern of salvation that we see in Scripture that we were talking about, and it's it's we hear it, we hear the gospel, which is the power unto God to salvation. Uh, an individual hears that gospel, either believes it or doesn't, and when they believe it, then God will save the person. So this is a bona fide offer from God to everyone in the world that if you believe, I will save you. And one, one quick, I mentioned the Greek word for believe. If, if you know one Greek word in all of Greek, now I'm not a Greek scholar, but uh, there are so many great tools out there today that if you're a Bible student, you've got the opportunity to um, look at and to study the, the Greek words that the English is a translation of. And my favorite Greek word in all of Scripture, and it's used hundreds of times, is the word for believe, and it's pistuyo. Pistuyo in the Greek means this, to believe it's true and to entrust for salvation. To believe it's true and to entrust for salvation. So what must I do to be saved, the jailer asks. Paul says, believe this message is true and entrust for your salvation. So the man on the cross, remember the thief at the cross? Mm -hmm. he, his the, he probably knew no theology whatsoever, right? And it's the last moments of his life, 
and this is this is what a wonderful picture, by the way, of the sequence of events in Scripture. He confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord, and clearly believes in his heart that he's risen, that he has the power. He, he hasn't risen yet. I was going to say risen from the grave, but he hasn't risen yet because they're on the cross. But that Jesus, this Jesus, was who he says he was, and had the power to bring him into his kingdom his future kingdom, even though they are both about to die on the cross. His faith in that, in Christ, and his power to bring him into that kingdom is clearly what saved him. The, the, and, and I think most Calvinists would, would agree that the man on the cross is saved, but it's not by his faith. It just so happens, coincidentally, that God just so happens to elect him right at that moment, right on the cross, right as they're dying. No, I, I don't buy that. I think the picture is clear, that his profession of faith is what saved him. So Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. So that is God's heart. Mm-hmm. God wishes none to perish. In fact, the Second uh, Peter 3, 9, that God wishes none to perish, but all to be saved, all to come to repentance. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's God's heart. That's why he sent his son. For God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, there are there, it, 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 it came up last week also that who did Christ die for? All right. So this is, uh, this is one of these that I think the, the question, kind of the, another core question of, of Calvinism versus my understanding of, of biblical salvation is the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Is Christ's work on the cross limited to some, uh, meaning the elect, or did Christ die for all on the cross? And I think clearly Scripture over and over again declares that Jesus on the cross died for all sin, for everyone's sin. So, for example, in John 1, when John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 4 says that we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. In Romans 5, it says the results of one act of righteousness was the justification that brings life for all men. Uh, Romans 6 says the death he died, he died to sin once for all. I mean, there's dozens of passages where Scripture says that he died for all, that he gave himself as a ransom for all men. Uh, Hebrews says that he tasted death for everyone. And the Calvinists will want to make to want, want to proclaim or declare that everywhere it says the world and for all and for everyone and for us and so on, it only means believers. It only means the elect. But I think the context is clear that God so loved the world, everyone in the world. He died for sin once for all as the Savior of the of the world. First uh, Peter says that he died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. Well, who's unrighteous? Everyone. Mm-hmm. Before Christians are saved, everyone. Paul says that Christ died for him, the worst of sinners. Well, who are sinners? 
That's the whole world. Everyone in the world is dead in trespasses and sins. Well, Christ came and died for that sin, everyone's sin. Um, his atoning work on the cross is not limited in any way. Scripture declares over and over and over that he died for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, 2 says it this way. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, meaning believers, right? So there I think it specifically means believers. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, believers' sins. But then watch what it says after this. And not only for our sins, believers' sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. So who did Christ die for? He died for our sins, believers, certainly, but not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. He died on the cross as the Lamb of God. And so John the Baptist declared truthfully that he is the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the whole world. Okay, Jeff, let's jump back to Second Peter 3, 9. Um, that mm-hmm. says that he is not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And you say that's God's heart. So God's going to end up with a pretty broken heart because there's many that will reject. Uh, yes. <laughs> Actually, yes. Um, remember the the narrow gate and the broad road, right? So that broad is the gate and wide is the road that leads to destruction, and many go through it. We know that most of mankind, most of the world, will not believe the gospel, will not believe in Christ as their Savior, and will go through that broad road to destruction. And then do you remember in Revelation, right? This happens, by the way, at the Great White Throne Judgment. The Great White Throne Judgment is, uh, is Judgment Day, right? That's the day when all of the lost humanity, this is described in Revelation 20 and 21, when all of lost humanity comes before the throne of God, the great white throne. God's on the throne. Christ is on the throne. We are on the throne. Believers are also on the throne. We will judge the world, Paul says, and this is the day. And before us, Bill, will be all of lost humanity. Okay, picture this day. Heaven and earth have now fled. God has yet to make and reshape the new heaven and new earth. And we're sitting right in between those two times at this great white throne judgment. And everyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life is thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. Okay? So all lost mankind is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. You know what verse comes right after this? What's that? It's the, ver- it's the verse where he's, God says he wipes every tear from our eyes. Now, some people read that and they say, see, there'll never be any tears in heaven. Well, if he's wiping tears from, it, from our eyes, it presupposes that we have tears in our eyes, right? Mm-hmm. Well, why are we as believers so sad? Well, we just saw most of mankind throughout all of history be thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. They never believed and were saved. They don't have the righteousness of Christ, so they can't enter into the new heaven and new earth, which God says nothing unrighteous will ever enter into it. So they can't. God doesn't have a choice. If you don't have the righteousness of Christ, you're not getting into the kingdom of heaven. All right, Jeff. All right, this yeah. eternal kingdom. Well, I got to hit pause here. We're up against a hard break. Jeff Ferdorn is my guest. We'll take a short break, and we'll be right back. 
to an encore presentation of Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Faith, hope, and clarity in a special repeat performance. Welcome back. Awful glad to have Jeffrey Doran as my guest today. We're talking about the uh, subject of election, and we're digging into the Word, and we're starting to look at all the truths that Scripture gives us, and it's just been so far uh, thrilling, Jeff. Well, good. I'm I'm sitting here. You know, I'm I'm looking out the window and I see palm trees uh, right outside my window. I've always wanted a palm tree in my yard. Yeah. Well, you're not making friends right now. Talking about I, I palm trees <laughs> when it's like ten below and like seventy feet I of will, snow. I will be back in a couple of weeks. Okay. And finish off winter with you. Okay. All right, thank you. Yeah. All right. So we were just talking about the Great White Throne Judgment. Yes. And our tears and uh, will heart God's heart break? Well, the answer is yes. If we, if our hearts are breaking for most mankind and we'll then be in glory and have the mind of Christ, Paul says, our, we will be, that's going to be a very, very sad day for us when, and we'll probably know some people. We, I, we will know some people. I mean, I know lost people. You mm-hmm. know lost oh, people. We all know lost yeah. people. Well, they will be standing before us on that day. And they will be sent, their names will not be in the Lamb's Book of Life, written before the foundation of the world, which is where we should go next. Does God know what's going to happen? Well, of of course he does. He's omniscient. He knows the end from the beginning. Um, In the Calvinist mind, the problem with... Uh, with the, how they how they understand it, that because God knows what's going to happen, He therefore causes what's going to happen. All right, and that that's just not. I can know what's going to happen and not be the causer of what's going to happen. So surely God knows from the foundations of the world who will be saved and who will not be saved. He knows the end from the beginning, mm-hmm. and that book, that Lamb's Book of Life, which we are written in as believers, it's scripture actually declares that that book was written before the foundation of the world, but that doesn't mean God causes that to happen. You see the distinction? The uh, I could use a little bit things? more help on this one. So just because I know the future doesn't mean I cause the future. So I could be, let's take an earthly example of something that you know is going to happen. You see a a kid at a restaurant, and he's playing with his glass of milk, and he's tipping it over, and he's wiggling it around, and you, and you just know he's going to spill that milk, right? Mm-hmm. This is a poor example because we're not omniscient like God. Right. And sure enough, he spills the milk. Well, you knew it was going to happen, but you didn't cause it to happen. Mm-hmm. In the same way, God in his omniscience knows tomorrow. He knows next week. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows all things right? Mm-hmm. He knows everything that's going to happen. So it's easy for him to have written this book, this Lamb's Book of Life, before the foundation of the world. He knows all things. But that doesn't mean in a Calvinistic way that he causes those people to believe and doesn't cause other people to believe. See what I'm saying? I do, yeah. Because if the first one is true, the second one has to be true. That that would mean by definition, if he causes some to believe and be saved, that means he doesn't cause others to believe and be saved. And if that's the case, whose fault is it? Who's responsible that most of mankind goes off to destruction? Well, it would be God's fault, right? Mm -hmm. In a Calvinistic worldview, in a Calvinistic theology, it is God's fault that most of mankind goes through that broad road 
to destruction. Um, and that's exactly what Second Peter 3.9 doesn't say. God's heart is that he wishes none to perish and all to come to repentance. That's God's heart. In fact, his heart is breaking for the world. Um, remember Jesus, he said, oh, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you together like a hen gathers her chicks, but you were unwilling. In fact, Scripture once again declares over and over again that people are not saved, not because God doesn't zap them into the kingdom of heaven, but because they refuse to believe and have life. John 5 says, but you refuse to come to me to have life. Um, he says in John 8, I told you that you are dead in your sins. If you do not believe and the, that I am the one that I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. John 12 says that even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe him. Acts 19.9. But some of them were obstinate, the people who were listening. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. And, and, and just one more, and this just sums it all up for me, all these dozens of passages where Scripture makes it clear that it is, it is people's fault that, they are, that they're thrown into the lake of fire because they didn't believe. And that's 2 Thessalonians 2.10. And that verse says this, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and thus be saved. So the fact that most of mankind is thrown into the lake of fire is not God's fault. God has done everything for their salvation. He loved them. He wished them that they wouldn't perish. He sent his son to die on the cross for the sins of the world, and he was buried and rose again and sits at the right hand of the Father, and now God is trying to do everything to get people to believe in him, right? Mm -hmm. He's shouting from heaven. It says all creation declares his glory so that man is without excuse. All creation is shouting the praises of God to mankind so that they might believe in him and by believing be saved. And so Second Thessalonians makes it very clear that people perish in the lake of fire. That's this great white throne judgment that we were talking about, because they refuse to love the truth and thus be saved. That's why people are lost. Mm -hmm. It's not It's not God's fault. Okay, Jeff, um, factor in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Yeah, so this is one that's often used by Calvinists, and it's kind of—it's it's interesting because it's a Calvinistic verse, right? No one can come to me unless the Father draws them. And so the question is, who then does God draw? In a Calvinistic sense, um, God has a universal call. Theologians call it a universal call. Creation declares his glory. He's calling all men to himself. But then Calvinists believe in what's called an effectual call that for some, God then calls them unto salvation. Well, if there truly was an effectual call in Scripture, as Calvinists say, well, then why have a universal call? Why would you even need a universal call? You would just zap certain people into the kingdom, and you wouldn't zap others into the kingdom, and it'd be as simple as that. But they believe in, in this universal call because you see it um, often in Scripture. But right after that verse, 
Jesus declares who he is going to draw to himself. And he says this, when I am lifted up, I will draw, oh, here's this word again, this wonderful little word, all. I will draw all men to myself. So I believe in this universal call of God where he is drawing all men to himself. So let's just really quick, let's look at how I think Scripture declares that God draws men to himself, just as Jesus said he would. Number one, we just talked about it. Romans 1 says that God, God's creation declares his glory so that man is without excuse. You should be able to open your eyes, look out your window at the palm trees or the snow or whatever, and know that there was a creator. Just as if you were to look at a painting, you know inherently that there's a painter or a sculpture. You know that there was a, a sculptor who did it. And so God says that when you look at creation, you should know that there was a creator and turn to him, right? Mm -hmm. Romans 2, 2 says that he put the righteous requirements of the law on men's hearts so they know right and wrong. We know that it's wrong to steal. We inherently know that it's wrong to steal everywhere. And that is because I believe that God has placed the righteous requirements of the law on man's heart. He says also that he puts eternity in men's hearts. I think it's Ecclesiastes 3 where he says he puts eternity in men's hearts. Every single culture in every century in every continent had some understanding of life after death. And why is that? And it's because I think God has put that there. He's put it in man's heart. Now, obviously, a lot of them didn't understand the reality or the truth of what eternal life is about. So they built pyramids and they buried treasure with their dead and whatever. But they had an understanding that there was something after this life. We inherently know that because God's put eternity in our hearts. He also says that he sends his Holy Spirit to convict the world. There's another one of those words, the world, the whole world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Spirit is out convicting, and he's called his people, the church, to go and preach the gospel so that they can hear it, and by hearing, believe it, and by believing it, be saved. One of the conversations that you guys uh, had last week that came up, the topic that came up, was about this gospel, and why do we preach the gospel? Well, I would argue under a Calvinistic theology, preaching the gospel is meaningless. It's meaningless because people are not saved by hearing the gospel and believing it. People are saved by God's divine election. So Bob sitting over there at the street corner is going to be zapped by God someday. And so the Calvinists will say, well, we don't know who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved, so we still need to go out and preach the gospel to everyone, because we just don't know who God's going to zap. But that's a misnomer. This is, this is a false argument, because the gospel is not needed for salvation under Calvinism. Do you see that? You don't believe until you're regenerated under Calvinism. So the sequence you're regenerated— of and then you believe, according right. to that. Okay. Correct. And who's regenerated according to Calvinism? Only the elect, by God's will. By It's his desire. It's his sovereignty. He picks certain individuals for election, and they're zapped, literally zapped into the kingdom. 
and you, there's nothing you can do about it. It's all God and nothing to do with man. So he picks Bob over here, and he picks Jane over here, and he picks Tom over there, and he doesn't pick, you know, Craig over there and Larry over there and Sue over there, and that's his sovereignty, and that's that's Calvinism. So the gospel really doesn't even come into play. Do you see that? I do see it. Mm-hmm. But I think the pattern everywhere. In, I mean, this this pattern is, I have a list of these passages where uh, the pattern is just declared that we hear, we believe, and we're saved, just like Ephesians 1 said. So, Jeff, as we look at Ephesians 1, and I just want to go back to this, because it says, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. That doesn't mean you're called to salvation. What does that mean? That means that you're called to holiness. All right. So see this. He chose us in him to be holy and blameless. This is God's plan. This is God's system of salvation, if you will. Those that believe will be made holy. They will be declared holy and blameless in his sight. Remember, Ephesians 1 has this whole list of everything that happens the moment you're saved. You're forgiven, you're redeemed, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, you're included with him, you're made holy, you're made blameless. And and all of these things happen, like I said in verse 13, when you believe and then God does that. So he will make you holy the moment you believe and he saves you. By the way, Salvation is all God's work. Can any person in the world make themselves forgiven? No. Can any person make themselves holy? No. Can anybody give themselves eternal life? No. Can anybody make themselves a child of God? No. No. All of these things are the work of God. All salvation is a work of God, because nobody can do these things on their own. That's so true. He promises to do these things to those who believe. So look, right after that, it uses this word predestined. Maybe, maybe if I use this word predestined, this will be this will be clear. Predestined is, you know, obviously a big um, a big component to Calvinistic theology. It, it appears in here in Ephesians one and also in Romans. It's only two places in Scripture, and in Romans it says here in Ephesians we kind of looked at this that we're predestined to be adopted as sons. Right? We are. We will be made children of God. Well, actually, the Book of John declares how we are made a child of God by believing. Mm. Right? Whoever yeah. believes in His name will give, be given the right to be called children of God. So how do we become children of God, sons of God? Uh, we believe. Um, and then Romans 8 is— again. Yeah, that's right. It's a huge understanding. Yeah. Jeff, uh, by gonna, the way, one more— I'm going to take one more break, and then we'll be back. Jeff Redorn's my guest. We're talking about election, and this is a fantastic study. If you've missed any of it so far, make sure you go to the very beginning and hit start. We'll take a short break and be right back. back to the show. Jeff Redorn's my guest. We're talking about the subject of election, which is not a small subject. Jeff, you're doing a fantastic job of biblically laying out the position and uh, appreciate um, the teaching today. It's been great. 
Well, cool. I, I, I do. I have a passion for this topic um, and a proper understanding because really, in the end, how we understand God's salvation affects how we understand God, mm-hmm. right? And is God a God that purposefully and willfully chooses to ignore most of mankind and not save them? Or is God a God that loves every single person in the world so much that he sent his son to die for them and is not willing that any should perish, but that every one of them believe and be saved and is doing all that he can from the powers of heaven to the church here below to save as many people as possible. And I will declare that latter God who loves the whole world every day of the week. Mm -hmm. So you said that's believe. One of the very interesting things about that Greek word believe we were just talking about again is that in the Greek there's a you can either have an active voice or a passive voice. English really doesn't have an active and passive voice in the word. But that word is the act in the active voice. In other words, we do the believing. Now, the Greek word for save, being saved, it's the Greek word sozos, that's in the passive voice. Isn't that a cool picture? Mm-hmm. We do the believing. That's our responsibility. God does the saving. It's done to us. And we actually see this picture in a lot of places, starting even way back in the Old Testament. I just thought of this. Just remember when Moses lifted up the serpent, and everyone who looked at the serpent was healed. They needed to look at the serpent. That was their act of faith. That was their active part in this transaction. You look at the serpent, then God will heal you. In the same way, he told the woman at the well, if you would have known who you were talking to, he said, you would have asked me for living water and it would well up to eternal life. She does the asking, the believing, God does the saving. Even in Revelation 3, where it says to the church in, in uh, 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 one of the seven churches, I think it's Laodicea, in the church of the Laodicea, it says, I stand at the door and knock. Whosoever opens the door, a picture of believing, I will come in and eat with them and them with me, a picture of salvation. So even Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. Uh, faith, by the way, is the same Greek word as believe. One's the verb, one's the noun. Uh, faith and believe. So clearly, over and over in Scripture, salvation comes by us believing. And the only reason why we are saved is because God, his plan of salvation, he promises he will save those who believe. Where do guys like you and I get the idea that we need salvation? Where'd that come from? You know, the one of the topics that came up is that Scripture declares that no one seeks God. And I actually think, and, and uh, kind of half agree with Calvinism in this regard, if God did nothing up in heaven, but he just made us and let us live down here all by ourselves without any, um, any calling from God whatsoever, I don't think we would seek God. Uh, but man, thankfully, he hasn't left us mm-hmm. there. So like I mentioned, Jesus said, 
when he is lifted up, he'll draw all men to myself. So he is drawing. The, the, and, and Calvinists would believe that too. The, the core question is, is he calling all men or only some men? And I believe he's calling all men to himself. So where did we get that idea? Uh, I think God was calling us. So in, in that regard, the, the first mover, if you will, in this whole sequence of events is truly God as the first mover in all this. But he clearly asks us to believe in him in order to open this door of salvation. Um, so when, when you believe, when you believe this truth, that Christ died for your sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and then appeared to many, um, and offers salvation to whoever believes. Uh, that's a bona fide offer from God to whomsoever shall believe it. Mm-hmm. And God offers this pardon to everyone, doesn't he? He does. I love how you use that word pardon, because you and I have talked about this on, on air in the past, the story of George Wilson. Oh, that's such a great and, story, uh, worth repeating. It is. It's uh, about 100 years ago. I think it was—I I don't have the notes in front of me, but it was about 1880. A man by the name of George Wilson and his friend robbed a mail carrier truck, and uh, they were they were killed a man in the process, but they were caught— they were sentenced for their crime, and they, since the man died, they were both sentenced to die by hanging. Well, the other man was actually hanged, but George Wilson knew someone who knew the president of the United States, Andrew Jackson. And Andrew Jackson issued George Wilson a pardon for his crime. And, but George Wilson refused the pardon, and the government didn't know what to do. No man had ever refused a pardon before. So they brought it into the court system, and the court, the case went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and Chief Justice Marshall stated this. So I'm, I'm going to paraphrase him here, that a pardon is an act that uh, relieves the person from the penalty of the crime that is committed, but a pardon to be in effect must be uh, delivered, but it must also be received. And this court knows no power to force a man to receive the pardon. And therefore, uh, you know what happened to George Wilson? He got hanged. He, he did get hanged. Mm-hmm. He got hanged. And the, here's the key. Was George Wilson, did he hang for his crime of murder, or did he hang because he refused the pardon? And the answer is, I believe that George Wilson was hanged because he refused the pardon. In the same way, all of mankind is dead in their trespasses and sins. We're guilty before God. But God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. That's the pardon. Christ died for all sins. He's pardoned the whole world. And that whoever accepts the pardon shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so salvation, this faith, is just like George Wilson. People who are lost and end up in the lake of fire, like we talked about earlier, refuse the pardon. Remember 2 Thessalonians 2.10? They perish because they refuse to love the truth and thus be saved. They refused, they rejected the pardon 
that God has to offer. That's why people aren't saved. Jeff, so many people struggle with this idea. They think, well, are you telling me that God just created people and allowed them to be born only to be uh, forever condemned without, without a chance of any kind? And I think this argument says, no, everyone has a chance uh, to hear the gospel and believe because God loved and died for the whole world. Absolutely. And like I said earlier, that's God's heart. That is God's desire for mankind. He's sitting up there wanting every single person to believe in him and be saved. But his, the issue is, like we talked about this new heaven and new earth. I love this line. I think it's in Revelation 21 where it says, of the new heaven and new earth, nothing unrighteous will ever enter into it. So in order to get these people who are unrighteous into his kingdom, they must possess the righteousness of Christ. And so he sent his son to die for the sins of the world so that who believes will receive the righteousness of God, right, through faith, and therefore be qualified to enter into this inheritance, this eternal life that he wants all men to enter into. Yeah, Jeff, just a wonderful discussion. Thank you so much for all the work you did in presenting the gospel and the presentation of this, uh, what Scripture teaches so beautifully. Cool. Well, I loved it. Thank you, Bill. Yeah. Jeff Redorn's been my guest. We are uh, so grateful that uh, you are supporters of Faith Radio. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, we're going to take a little break, and we'll be back with Hour 2 in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.